You're listening to Of Slights and Men with Benji and Jacob. A Daily Magician Production. Well, hello, and welcome back to Of Slights and Men. Uh, I'm I'm very excited today to be joined by a very special guest that I think pretty much everyone in the magic world that knows their name already. It's uh, Mr. Jamie in Swiss. Uh, and just for you, the, those of you that don't know who Jamie is, uh, I'll give him a, a brief introduction. Uh, Jamie has performed worldwide um, from Caesar's Palace on the Las Vegas Strip to Hollywood's Magic Castle to the Ginza district of downtown Tokyo. He's made numerous television appearances, including CBS 48 Hours, PBS Nova, CNN, uh, he's been on The Late Late Show, he's been on The Today Show, and he's also the author of five books and a contributor to countless others. <laughs> uh, he also writes and produces for television, including Penn and Teller, uh, and recently uh, American Gods. So, Jimmy, how, how are you doing? How's your living so far? Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> Perfect. Hopefully it will stay that way with this podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me on. Well, thank you. Well, I'd love to get started with, I know it's a cliche question, but I'd love to get out of the way because I, I am interested. Um, for everyone at home, how did you actually get into magic? How did this whole magic journey right. begin so, for you? Right, uh, so when I was a young boy, I was a very shy, introverted kid. I've since outgrown that phase. But uh, <clears throat> in my youth, I had all the qualifications for excellence in magic. I was basically a fat, four-eyed kid with a speech impediment. <laughs> And so uh, my parents were constantly trying to introduce my, me to new things that, as they used to say in those days, would bring me out of myself. And so I was interested in art. I was a passionate reader. I, um, uh, I, and when I was about seven, I started playing music, uh, became very serious about guitar for many years. Uh, and I was interested in magic. And what happened was my father uh, had a friend who uh, performed the color vision box for him, a classic slum magic mind reading trick. Mm. And my dad was badly fooled and said, where do you get something like this? And he was directed to Tannen's Magic when it was at the top of the World Sir building in Times Square <clears throat> and run by Louis Tannen. My dad went up there, asked about the trick. Lou Tannen sold him the trick and taught him the trick. And my dad took my mom and I out to dinner at a local restaurant that night. And he, quite shockingly, surprisingly to me, he performed the trick and utterly amazed me. And all of a sudden, my dad had become a magician, it seemed, to me. And he didn't tip it to me at the time. He said, well, later. And then later that night, when we were back home, far from the prying eyes of witnesses like my mother, uh, he taught me the color vision box. And it began with that. And he had this wonderful insight, um, <clears throat> or maybe even that he didn't even fully realize how great this insight this was at the, t at the start, which was when you first get started in magic, you learn, when you learn the secret, you're almost invariably disappointed. And not only are you disappointed, mm. oh, is that all it is, but you're also nervous and insecure as to whether you can fool somebody with this. Well, my dad 
over the next two years would periodically, when I had mastered a trick, I was very methodical. And so when I had practiced and mastered and I could perform the trick, he would go to Lutan and get another trick. And then he'd come home and he was not a magician, but he would always perform every trick once for me. Mm -hmm. And by fooling me with it, when I was working on it, he could remind me if I was uncertain, he could remind me, wait, wait, remember what the magic was like. Remember how the magic felt and that sustained me. So it all began with that. And then, and that story, apart, and along with a, a larger aspect of that story and that trick is recounted in one of my favorite pieces in my first book, Shattering Illusions, called Real, the piece is called Real Secrets. I talk about that. And throughout my writing over the years, I have talked about Lutanens and what a phenomenal opportunity I had. I, I didn't even realize how great it was um, that I was at one of the greatest magic stores in the world, in the greatest city in the world, where hanging around, by the time my dad would start taking me to the store, once I was about 10, and by the time I was 11 or so, I would on a Saturday, I'd take the subway into the city and I'd hang around the shop, and it was like a little magic convention. And even though I was painfully shy, and really wouldn't approach people, I could quietly stand there and watch and listen to Frank Garcia and Harry Lorraine and Ed Michelle and on and on and on. Or, uh, as I did just a few years later in my, in my early teens, when Al Coran, the great British mentalist, came to the United States, he came to New York because that Sunday night he was going to be on uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, you know. And in the afternoon, he was in the store. I also got to see him live on two nights of shows that <clears throat> Tannins produced that year instead of their annual convention. Um, and I went to the show on Friday night with my dad. He took me. And I saw, among other people, Al Coran and the first great mentalist I ever saw live. He blew us away, um, inspired me in ways that have affected my work now uh, 50 years later. And the next day in the store, I'd been reading one of his books because I knew he was coming to that show. And, uh, and the next day I met him in the store and I asked him about something in the book that I didn't understand. And he just said, well, give me a deck of cards. And he immediately did the thing for me. <laughs> and uh, these were tremendous opportunities. And as the years unfolded, I got to watch, you know, Derek Dingle up close and Slidini and Al Goshman. And so I really had tremendous opportunities uh, growing up in the culture of a great magic shop like Tannins. Yeah, I'm actually, it's interesting when you, when you spoke about that, um, I was kind of reminded of, of a lot of like, I spoke to like Dr. Rubenstein, uh, it's been a while ago now, but he uh -huh. talked about like a, a similar thing of just this kind of culture where these magic shops and just those communities that were of magicians who would just come together and, it's something that I'm interested as a younger magician myself, where would you advise me to go to try and find something like that? Obviously we have the internet now and we have kind of online magic clubs, but if you really want to try and find the best, where, where would right. you advise somebody to so go? So unfortunately, um, you know, the, the cities that had the best magic cultures throughout my mm. life have been the cities with the best magic shops. The right. one went with the other. Because the mess magic shops were actually artistic cultural centers. Sure, they're there to make money. And sure, the guy was going to sell you some crap you didn't need sometimes. But <laughs> the really great ones 
were also there. You know, Lou Tannen, one of the most important things I learned from Lou Tannen is that on those Saturday afternoons, and I, I will try and formulate an answer to your question, but as mm-hmm. by way of background, yeah, on those Saturday afternoons, when I would put my, you know, my weekly allowance on the counter, literally a dollar or two dollars for a trick, even with world-class magicians standing in the store, once he took my money, he would say, come this way. And he would take me around to the, uh, the far end of the store. And then he would bestow the secret upon me far from everyone else's eyes and without ever saying anything to me directly about it or cautioning me or scolding me what that taught me what that integrated into my being as a magician was tremendous respect for the secret and for what was being transmitted and passed along and this is one of you know I said, Denny Haney, uh, uh, I was saying just to someone else uh, a little while ago, uh, Scott Alexander did this wonderful book about the American magic dealer, Denny Haney, Haney but who was a good friend of mine and passed uh, away a couple of years ago. And But before Denny was a professional, was a magic shop proprietor, he was a professional magician, one of the most successful professional magicians working in America on the college circuit. And so he was... And he was a true artistic mentor. He mentored, he made magicians. And with the loss of magic shops, we've lost that kind mm-hmm. of community and tradition. Now, there are exceptions. There's Hollywood, uh, not Hollywood magic, sorry. There's uh, Big Apple uh, mm-hmm. in uh, L.A. Uh, there's a handful of other still serious good magic shops in America, but they are... You know, there's very, very few left. So, and then you have magic clubs. And magic clubs, as Tommy Wonder wrote, often put fraternity and friendship and politics ahead of art. And then they become, as Tommy Wonder, in my friend Tommy Wonder's words, anti-magic organizations. So they are highly variable. Um, There are good ones, there are bad ones. But the one good thing that magic clubs can provide is live lectures. And again, here's a case where it's very unfortunate that the live lecture audience uh, has gone toward to online, to these endless, you know, Penguin Live lectures, and Murphy's Table lectures. Mm-hmm. And it's not that there's not good content there. There's a lot of horrible content, but there's also a lot of good content, excellent content. But there's a different experience in being live in a lecture where first you have the sense of live theater, that something's happening that's never going to happen again, never happened before, never going to happen again the same way. But also that you get to interact and you get to raise your hand and ask a question uh, or go out you know, and have a cup of coffee with the performer afterwards and ask a question or see some work or show him something. And when I helped create Monday Night Magic, which is, you know, New York's longest running off-Broadway show. I was actually in contact with them yesterday. That's that's cool. So I'm one of of the original producers of that. I'm still one of the co-producers. Wow. Uh, As I say, we are the actual longest running off-Broadway show in New York, uh, temporarily down for COVID, obviously. Um, 
But when I was there, it's changed a bit now, but when I was there, uh, I a big part of my personal mission, ambition, was I to create this post-show hangout culture uh, that is written about in uh, the New Yorker magazine profile of me, uh, where, you know, we not only put young magicians on stage, but we could come and talk and mix and meet. And all of my ushers, almost all of my ushers were young magicians. And, you know, I can't, I mean, there's a ton of young professionals now who are killing it out there as full-time pros who started out with Monday Night Magic. My dear friend, Noah Levine, mm-hmm. who I know since he's about 13 years old, one of the most successful magicians in New York who pre-COVID had had this nighttime show at Tannins that was written up in the New York Times twice. You know, he came up at Monday Night Magic. Um, so anyway, the, the what I'm trying to say is that while there's tremendous content online, much of it good, it is not and should be should not be a substitute for the live experience. And you have to try and find a live experience. You have to, you know, mm-hmm. I would seek out magic clubs if for no other reason to go see live lectures when quality names come through town. Um, and again, the clubs vary. And maybe there's one near you that's actually focused on art and not doing, you know, and this month, rope magic, because that's the kind of thing nobody ever gets good at anything. Um, but it all depends. You know, who are the mentors? Are there mentors present? And mentoring is is a big part of it. I've been mentoring. I, I just mentioned <laughs> inadvertently some names. I've been mm-hmm. mentoring magicians all my adult life. And I write and I lecture. I do all these things because I'm. it's my way of paying back those days at Tannins, those glory days at Tannins, paying it forward and investing in the future of my art after I'm gone. Um, and, you know, I see conversations where, well, you know, I see online questions. Do you need a mentor? I mean, it, it, the fact that you're even asking the question already is problematic. You know, I, I once saw a, a discussion of this online many years ago where somebody said, well, Vernon didn't have any mentors. That's lunacy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Vernon had mentors and he talked about them all the time. And he talked about them even more the older he got. I just watched, if you know, for members of the Magic Castle, uh, while they are shut down in COVID, they've been doing all of these wonderful online events for the membership shows, lectures, historical talks, all kinds of interviews. And a couple of months ago, they put up a a lecture that Vernon did in his late, I think he was 88 at the time, at the castle that I'd never seen before. It was absolutely fantastic, just marvelous. John Carney and I were talking about it a few weeks later, just how incredibly good it was. And Yet, and here's Vernon, who all of the people who affected him and, and contributed to him and taught him things and whatever, they're all dead, they're all gone. And yet he couldn't pick up a prop as he moved from cups to coins to cards to rings to rope, item to item to item. He couldn't pick up something without saying, you know, so-and-so taught me this and I'm going to show it to you now or whatever. 
or so-and-so did a great job with this. Uh, and, you know, with the recent passing of my friend David Roth, um, uh, you know, there's this wonderful story about Roth going to the castle when he was, he, he turned 21 and instantly went to perform at the Magic Castle. And that week he was performing in the close-up gallery. And when Vernon came in to see the show, <clears throat> Vernon stood up at the end of the show, stopped the applause, stopped people from leaving the room, I should say, really, and said, wait, 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 I have to say something here. I've seen Fraxen, I've seen T. Nelson Downs, I've seen the best, the greatest in history. What you just saw is the greatest coin magic that has ever existed, that I have ever seen in my life. I mean, this wow. is this is what Vernon was like, okay? This is his his whole being was about giving credit and sharing credit. Um, so anyway, uh, I think mentorship is a really critical part of the process, and I defy you to find a really accomplished magician who doesn't have mentors to talk about. I mentioned Alex Boyce before. Alex Boyce, uh, when he started getting interested in bird magic, he called Johnny Thompson up, and Johnny said. Come to Las Vegas. I'll help. Didn't say there'd be a fee. Didn't ask anything else. Alex was just a sincerely interested student. And that's what Alex did. He went out and he studied with Johnny Thompson. And it's one of the many reasons that Alex Boyce is doing the, burst, the best bird act I know of among any young magicians working today. So I think mentorship is critical and of course we you know we can at least find some of this at magic conventions uh this is the best purpose of a convention not is both to meet with your colleagues show work share work but also to find people who know more than you do if you surround yourself with people in your art where you're always the smartest guy in the room that might feel good to some people but it means you're not going to advance. And I changed careers late in life, 29. I never did a paid show till I was 29, even though I started as a boy. And within, I, I fortunately got a wonderful job within a couple of years where I moved to Washington, D.C. And I was the full-time magic bartender for Bob Sheets' In of Magic, the world's largest magic bar. I did magic five nights a week for two years. Got good. And then the question was, what was I going to do next? And I had seen the Penn and Teller show a couple of times. It was running in New York at that time. They were just coming up. And I really admired what, I admired the show. I loved the show. I really admired what Penn Jillette did on stage because he was a big, loud, funny guy, fast talker, articulate. And, um, and he, and I had met him through some mutual friends and he really kind of scared the crap out of me. He intimidated the <laughs> crap out of me. And so, you know what I did? It was like a moth to the flame. I went straight at him and we became fast friends. We became very close friends for a lot of years, especially when we lived in New York together in the early nineties. And I ended up working for them and writing for them at one point on one of their early TV shows. and. I learned a tremendous amount. And the reason I learned a tremendous amount was because I found a guy who not only, who, who both knew more than me, had more experience than me, 
this wasn't about learning sleight of hand. I didn't learn any sleight of hand from Penn Jillette, but I did talk a lot of magic with Teller. But um, basically, it was a guy who was more experienced than me and scared the hell out of me. And uh, that's what you have to do. And and even though he was a contemporary, he did have a big impact on me, the same way Johnny Thompson always talked about Harry Reiser as being one of his mentors, along with Vernon and, and Charlie Miller, even though Harry Reiser was essentially Johnny's contemporary. So um, I think finding mentors and finding people who are better than you and know more than you, where you get to shut up and listen, um, is all are all critical parts of the process. And it's harder today to do that, I realize. Uh, but there are ways to do it. And certainly magic conventions, good magic conventions, are a way to do that. I've recently become, the last few years, as I've become affiliated with Vanishing Inc., as my publisher, um, I've had the chance to attend a number of their conventions. And their Magi Fest convention is absolutely terrific. And it's really put together in a way that's not just there to sell you stuff and not just there to waste your time. It's really put together in a way that's intended to be substantive and supportive and very supportive to younger magicians, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. So there's ways, there's ways to do it. I interrupt this podcast to give a brief shout out to our website, thedailymagician.com. If you haven't already signed up for our daily emails that will give you great content just like this podcast, please head over there and sign up now. That's thedailymagician.com. We promise that we won't disappoint you. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is that you, you talk about, I was actually asking Andy about that the other day because I, I was I've, I haven't been to one of their conventions because I've, it's only recently that I've, well, that I've started wanting to really attend them. And um, I know that, um, yeah, I was talking to Andy about it and he's like, just like the nicest convention you'll ever go to. <laughs> that like everyone's open and willing to speak to you and that they only go after uh, magicians that are willing to, to help other people. And, yeah, and I think they, what really impressed me yeah. about a Magi Fest when I, is that, and I've been to like three of them now. Um, and I think the first one was the one they booked me for because they had, mm -hmm. I had this new material coming out through them. Um, but I've been to three of them now. And what impressed me is they really have an idea behind what they're doing. They have an idea about behind who they book, how they put the shows and lectures program together. It's not overstuffed with content. There's nothing competing with anything else. They'd rather give an interesting young performer uh, an hour to really show what he has and then take a nice break after instead of trying to pile six guys on stage, you know, on a panel or some right. nonsense that you don't really learn anything from. I mean, I first met Nick DeFat at MagiFest. And he did an hour on stage. And I went, this kid is awesome. And, you know, <laughs> went out to dinner with him and a bunch of other young friends and, you know, instantly got to know him. And, and there, there really is a, a very um, supportive kind of environment there. It's a different, it's a little bit of, even though it's getting bigger and bigger, it has a distinct feel and a distinct idea. You know, when David Blaine, uh, came and attended, I guess it was the last one I was at. Um, was it, maybe, maybe it was the last one. Maybe it was the one before that. Anyway, uh, 
Oh, it was the it was the one before that. I think. Anyway, and David came in for dropped in for a, a good portion of the conference, along with my our mutual dear friend Ossie Wynn. Um, and David was just so incredibly gracious. I mean, he's a superstar. You have a lot of young people at this convention. They can't believe he's there. And they're on him just like, you know, monkeys on a tree. And he was just endlessly patient and kind and would watch magic and sign things and whatever. And I thought, oh, this that's is really cool. great, you know, and that's on him. That's not on the convention. But I think I like to think that partly David was comfortable of doing that because of the environment that Josh and Andy are trying to create. Yeah, I love that. I think one thing that's interesting as well that I've, that I've written about actually to our email list and just to people that listen to us is people, I mean, the top magicians are a lot more accessible than you might think. <laughs> For instance, you, Jamie, I mean, you didn't know me before today. I, I mean, I reached out cold to you. I sent you an email and you were gracious enough to come on the podcast. And I think, and I, I, think, say, I, think I said, you, I think I sent you a two word answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I wrote, yeah, sure. Or why not? Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, and, and the thing is like that, that's the sort of responses I've got from pretty much like everyone in the magic industry. And, and I think honestly, a, a lot of people, well, first of all, you can find paid mentorship. I know a lot of the top magicians offer lessons. Um, and well, then, I've been a very serious instructor for 35 years. I, I, I always have private right. students and not, I, which is a mix. My clientele is both a mix of amateurs and professionals. Um, who come for different reasons and, and obviously do different things. Pros, pros will sometimes show me a whole act uh, to look at, but also mm -hmm. I have ongoing relationships with pros who will come in with a specific routine, you know, uh, to work on it. But I also love teaching amateurs, and I've always had a few, just a couple few amateur students uh, throughout my life who I have a particular way of teaching that I've refined over the year, many years and who I try to help turn into real magicians, someone who can get up at a dinner table after dinner, even if they just perform socially. Um, and, uh, you know, even if they do three things and sit down that the other people at the table go, wow, that's the greatest mag magician I've ever seen in my life. And that's actually something that is very doable and very accessible and doesn't require, doesn't require, I don't teach people to be me. I try and teach people to be the best magician they can be. I help them write scripts and original presentations, things they thought they could never do. And I help them, you know, I guide them through a select, a very carefully selected, very small coterie of slights that are not remedial slights. They're slights they're going to use their whole lives but they're very efficient pieces of the toolbox. And you can have a career in magic. You could have a professional career in magic with, you know, six slides if you do them really well, if they're well chosen and you do them well. And that's kind of what I try and teach people because a significant portion of my clientele is typically people who've been in magic all their lives. They're middle-aged. They've never quite accomplished what they wanted to, or they didn't have time for so, a while while they were busy with career and family. And now they finally want to buckle down and try and see if they can get to the next stage where they're not just goofing around with the same tricks over and over again and never mm. mastering them. Al Goshen used to say, professional magicians do 
old tricks for new audiences. Amateur magicians do new tricks for old audiences, and that's why the amateurs can never get as good. Well, I, I've tried to de devise an approach that emulates uh, professionals and resolves that challenge. Hmm. I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm sold. Uh, <laughs> that sounds exciting. Well, anyway, but, but as you say, magicians are, tend yeah. to be accessible. I mean, um, you know, I get mm -hmm. emails from readers, people who either find my email address or they mm -hmm. write to me through my website. And I answer every one of them. If they write and they have a comment about a book they mine they've read or they have a question, um, the better the question, the better the answer they're going to get. But they're, they're right. all they're all going to get they're all going to get a response, you know. And uh, so, yeah. Um, and I and I think that's often the case, especially from people who are not desperate to just monetize their product yeah, hmm. yeah I'm, I'm actually interested you you touched on original magic there for a second and i'm interested as someone like yourself who's i mean i, I think i've pretty much seen your name on like I, almost every magic product i go on it has a review by you well, <laughs> all the good ones anyway that, but <laughs> but uh, mostly just, books, just, you know, I don't, I don't yeah, actually yeah. review, I don't review products and I rarely almost never give endorsements other mm -hmm. than to say, if I review the book, you can use a pull quote and there's right. very few exceptions, you know, of course there's these days, there's a lot, it's, there's a lot of books you're going to pick up and you're going to find my name somewhere because I helped edit it or, you know, somebody asked me to look at it or things like that. Um, right. and so there's that but um anyway yeah no yeah that is a good clarification but all the good stuff that a lot of the good stuff i've read i've seen you your reviews on it and, and what I'm, I'm interested by is how do you go about creating good original magic i know that's a big question but what is right your so process? you know magic i often compare magic to what's known in the music world as the great american songbook Singers like Frank Sinatra and um, uh, and Peggy Lee and Ella Fitzgerald, and there are more modern, uh, younger models um, uh, as well uh, who reinterpret great standards, song standards. Um, is a distinct branch of the musical arts of the, and of singing arts. Um, and I think magic in many ways is a very good analogy, is very analogous to that. Because as we know, magic is a field which suffers from a paucity of effects for which there are a plethora of methods. And most of the progress in magic, advancement in magic comes in the method area which is much easier to evolve or design new methods or better methods. Well, there's a lot of new methods that are not better, but um, that's where most of the advancement occurs. And in my life, I've only known a handful of magicians who are really in the habit of creating new effects. Uh, Scotty York was one of those. Teller is one of those. But even those people, uh, no matter how original and innovative they are, they still, you know, Teller spends his life going through old magic books and figuring out how to turn old ideas very often into a pen and Teller trick. Mm -hmm. 
So most of that, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that how you learn to be the, one of those effect innovators. I think that has to do, I think that's a, like a unique quality of mind. And I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm not a novel. I'm not an inventor of novelties. When you've been at it, as long as I have, you're bound to come up with a few things. There's a couple of little original ideas that are attached to my name, but that's not really my strength. Um, my strength is as a performer and as an orchestrator of making good selections of good material, putting it together my own way, studying it thoroughly enough, every new piece thoroughly enough that I can then kind of take the parts, pull them together in a way that suits me. And then figuring out how to make it my own and the way you make it your own the, the the technical changes you make are just the things you do to make it work for you. But really the way you make it your own to the audience is your manner of expression, what you have to say. And a lot of what you have to say and a lot of your manner of expression, even if you're a silent performer for that matter, has to do with attitude, personality, character, point of view. All those things are very closely related because what an audience wants from any live performer, not just a magician, but a comedian or a singer, is point of view. They want to know your point of view about what you're doing. And if they get a sense of that point of view, then they will decide if they like it or they don't like it. But they will care enough, they will be engaged enough to at least think about that and come to a conclusion if they feel you have a point of view. The problem with so much magic, so many performers, is that there is no point of view. There's just this thing that's happening in their hands. And if what is coming out of your mouth is blather, that's thoughtless, has no meaning, uh, audiences intuit that really quickly. And they really grasp if what you're saying doesn't really matter to you or doesn't have meaning or conviction for you. And if it doesn't, if it's not authentic, it's not genuine, if it doesn't reflect you in some genuine way, then all they're left with is trying to figure out the trick. And that's how you get hecklers and things like that. Or mm. people who just look at magic as puzzles. It's because you haven't given them anything else to engage with. And if you think of all the live performers you like who are not magicians, singers or comics, if you think of the ones that you really like, you can describe each one of their character and point of view in a sentence. And in some cases, a really short sentence. And that's what audiences look for from live performers. Now, when we talk about this idea of character a lot in, in conversation and magic, it often gets dealt with as if it's this external thing that you have to construct and paint on, you know, that you have to kind of wear. That's not really what it is. In most cases, there are exceptions, rare exceptions. Uh, a couple of really good exceptions are Rob Zabrecki or, or John Lovick, whose characters are reflections of aspects of themselves, but they've also constructed these very arch, contrived kind of characters, and they get a lot out of that. Both these guys are terrific writers. And they both, interestingly enough, come out of really deep theater backgrounds. 
as actors or directors. So they're not good models for the average person to work for and that from, and they're impossible models to work from for close-up magic that you do socially. <clears throat> the thing about character is that character is really who you are already, but selected, polished, edited, some parts pushed aside and not shown, some parts, the best parts pushed forward and heightened and brought into the light, polished, simplified. There, it's you, but it's a special version of you. And it's very hard to develop that, to understand that without just doing a lot of material in front of audiences and seeing what works and seeing what people respond to. And, you know, suddenly, <laughs> if you will, the day comes where you're looking at, you know, mm. a list of new tricks that you're interested in. And you can, when you find yourself saying to yourself, you know, I'm going to work on this, but this other thing, this is a great trick. I love this trick. I love the way so-and-so does this trick. I could do this trick. I have the skills for this trick, but you know what? I don't think that's a Jamie trick. I don't think that's a, a trick that really suits me or that I'm speaking through in a natural way. I'm going to put that trick aside. When you start to select material, because selecting repertoire is in itself a creative act. When you start selecting repertoire based on your persona and your as a pathway for you to speak to the audience, that's when you can start. That's when you're really starting to do original work. And I don't mean, I'll add, that I don't mean that it's always about writing elaborate scripts. For me, for many years, it was. And I have some pieces of my shows that are long and very wordy, unsurprisingly. But, <laughs> um, but I also, over the many, many years, have come to agree with Tamariz, who writes about this extensively in The Magic Rainbow. Um, and there's a succinct essay about this in John Lubbock's uh, book, where he has a little chapter, a little essay where he talked to about, I don't know, a dozen professionals, myself included. And he gave them a list of, you know, method, effect, character, presentation, and said, put these in order of importance. And I have come to agree with Tamariz over the years. I didn't always. Tamariz's order of importance and mine is the most important thing is persona which is another way of saying character. The personality of the magician, not a thing you create, a thing that you are. Um, and then comes choice of effect, and then comes choice of method, and only then, and this was controversial when Juan started to talk about this in lectures years ago, uh, only then comes presentation. I used to think, if you'd asked me this question in the late 80s and the 90s, I would have said, well, presentation first. But I've mm. come to be convinced that Juan is right and that presentation is something you add on judiciously. Sometimes it's very appropriate. Sometimes it's utterly not, it's almost not necessary. And my friend Roberto Giobi says, likes to say, who's like me, is a, is a big food and wine guy, uh, we've had many, we've shared many great meals together all around the world. 
And Roberto once said to me when we were discussing this many years ago, if you, we appreciate presentation in a restaurant, what's called presentation in food, what it looks like on the plate. We appreciate that a great deal. But if you had a choice between going to a restaurant where the food is great and the presentation's lousy, or a restaurant where the presentation's great and the food is lousy, well, what are you going to pick? And so it's interesting to read Lovick's chapter because not everybody puts these things in the same order. It's very interesting to read that essay and see how they list those, their list of those items reflects in their work. That's a fascinating thing to look at in that chapter, in that wonderful book. But for me, I think what Juan is saying, and I agree, is that if you sincerely, genuinely put the trick through yourself, there's a process of it going from your hands, through your body, up through your brain and personality and coming out of your mouth to the audience. If you really put it through yourself and it becomes a reflection of your personality, of your personality without necessarily saying a lot about it, without having a contrived speech, without having a story, for God's sake, this idea that every magic trick needs a story is probably the worst, single worst thing to happen to magic in the last 50 years. But... <laughs> Not a story, but just that it's coming from a sincere point of view. That is where originality occurs. That's where performers distinguish themselves. That's where they set themselves apart. And by the way, most importantly of all, that's what the audience connects with and remembers. I like that. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, I read a lot of marketing books and just business books in general. And it's it's one of the things that they say a lot as well, which is don't don't just like build a brand, like build the brand around yourself, like make the brand you. <laughs> and if you do that, then people will buy whatever you put out. And so it's kind of interesting in that same way of like, at least if I'm interpreting it correctly, it's like when you create this persona, when you are this character, the audience is taking from you rather than kind of what you're putting out. It, it's, it's based around what you're, what your one-on-one -on -one connection with them, what that persona is creating for them. That's from, right. And, from the, and the magic or the, whatever your medium is becomes ultimately what all, all art is, which is a medium of expression. Art mm. is a means of expression. And you, you can't make meaningful art if you haven't got something to express. If you haven't got an idea in your head, if you, you know, People, a young, a young magician asked me, how, how do I become an, you know, an interesting magician, interesting original magician? And I always say, well, become an interesting person. <laughs> if you become an interesting person, you'll become an interesting artist. And how do you become an interesting person? Well, you're becoming an interesting person by getting your head up out of the ass of magic and into the world. And I always tell art students, if somebody tells me they're going to college for advanced degree in the arts, whether it's writing or acting or whatever, I always say, take a science class. Take a lot of science. Now, I don't know that anyone's ever listened to me about that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that although I'm completely self-educated, I think college is fine as a way to start yourself off in the arts. But I think 
so that you can learn the fundamentals. But beyond, you know, a bachelor's, if you're really going to be an artist, I don't, I don't really see the point personally, because um, in order to become a good artist, you basically have to do three things. You have to consume art, you have to produce art, and you have to get good critique. That's all it is. That's a lot, but that's what it is. So it doesn't matter what the art is, whether you're going to be a writer or a painter or a magician or anything. It doesn't matter. So you have to consume a lot of art, expose yourself to a lot of good quality art. You have to produce art, just keep making stuff. And then, and this is the tricky part, you have to find qualified critique. And that word qualified is a, that's a, a huge, huge problem. Now, mm. if you go to school, that's one way to do it because school makes you consume art and gives you some recommendations about what art you should be consuming. That's good. It makes you produce art because it gives you assignments. You have no choice. That's good. And then in theory, it gives you qualified critique in the form of your instructors. But that's not always the case, is it? And so if you are self-motivated enough, you can do all those things yourself, as I did. I consumed a lot of art, I produced art, and you know, I kept doing magic socially, whatever. And I always tried to find people who were, as I said before, smarter than me, better than me. Um, but if your, if your critique is coming from people who are unqualified, or people who know less than you, or just are there to make you feel good, say nice things to you, well, you're not going to progress in that way, right? So you can do, you can accomplish this any number of ways. But what, again, what it comes down to is, is that art is a means of expression. And so I say, study science, because you'll learn how to think Right? If you just stay in the arts, you're not going to necessarily become a good critical thinker. But becoming a good critical thinker is a really useful skill in life. And so take a damn science course. But, but also, I say to young magicians, read the newspaper. Read today's New York Times or Washington Post or read the New Yorker. Read good literature. Read essays. Read good journalism. See what it's like, read good ideas, well-expressed, well-thought ideas, become an interesting and eclectic person. Vernon himself, and in fact, every genius I've ever known, the handful of geniuses I've known, all shared this. Tommy Wonder the same way. Uh, Tom Arise, perfect example. All these guys, we think of them as being utterly obsessed with magic, and they are absolutely constantly thinking about it. And yet, Tamariz is this incredibly eclectic individual who can talk about music and talk about art and is interested in all of these different subjects. Tommy Wonder was the same way. And Vernon would make fun of, to me, saying it in passing, of, you know, the problem with this guy is all he knows about is magic. He doesn't know about anything else. Whereas Vernon could sit and talk to anyone from the high to the low. Right from the most sophisticated company to an illegal gambling club in Kansas City, 
He could talk to anybody. That was part of his skill set. I briefly pause this podcast to give a shout out to the Daily Magician Tapes Collection. This is a growing collection of exclusive audio training and interviews with some of the world's best, including the magician that you're listening to right now. If you'd like to find out more about the Daily Magician Tapes, head over to thedailymagician.com slash tapes. That's thedailymagician.com slash tapes. We'll see you there. I I absolutely love that. I think that is so important. And I hope people, everyone, everyone that's listening just is reflecting on what Jamie just said. <laughs> and maybe I should have given them a second to do so. But I, I think that that's actually a... Uh, such an important point and and like i said before that that is exactly everything that we try and talk about the daily magician is you you there's actually there's a really famous marketer um called um jay abraham um and he's famous for doing exactly that he'll go into a construction company and he'll use something he learned from a restaurant to revolutionize that company um and because he made that he twigged early on <laughs> that if you just go outside of your industry and apply things that are working in other industries, right. then you can greatly in- increase your own profits. And so, and, and I hate to <laughs> I kind of feel bad, like talking about art and the profits in the same way, but it's, it's, it's interesting what you're saying as far as that is such an important thing. You're not going to be able to relate with an audience. If all you do every day is, you know, just think about magic and you're constantly absorbed in magic because they're not right. And, I think that that's such an interesting point. Thank you for, for bringing that yeah. up, Jamie. I'm interested. How do you continue to develop that? How are you continuing yourself to like learn every day and continue to build yeah, that knowledge? So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm an obsessive reader. I, I love mm. the literature of magic. And I also love just books in general. Um, I'm fortunately, fortunate my partner, Anne, who is a data yeah. analyst uh, and business strategist. Um, she, more than any partner I've ever had, she really loves the idea of books. And I never have to hide the next box of books that's coming into the door because, <laughs> because we always laugh about it. And she will say things like, oh, good, these books have found a home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we live uh, in the current in our current house. We live with, I don't know, a couple of thousand books, I think. Hmm. And um, and there's more always coming. And um, I'm always torn because there are times where I think, wow, you know, if I just if I just retired from writing about magic. Uh, I could stop reading magic books and read other books. Now, it's not that I don't read other books. I have the piles in the bedroom are, are mostly non-magic books, but mostly, not entirely. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I don't get to read anywhere near as much non-magic as I would like to. And these days, after a lull of about 20 years, these days, there's really a, uh, I think, a renewed energy and interest in in quality magic books coming out. They don't sell as many copies as, as they did twenty years ago, but um, well, that's not true either anymore. Actually, that's not entirely true. There are some that are huge sellers, uh, maybe bigger than ever than ever before. 
But there's a surprising amount of good quality. I've got I've got a pile of 20 new magic books sitting in one of my piles. And um, I'm not going to get to read them all uh, entirely, but I will get to page through them all for sure and read some of them. And some I some I will and have and have read cover to cover. Um, and so reading and then in my case, writing helps me to keep thinking about it, especially during COVID. I'm fortunate that um, I have this second hat. And so I've been very busy writing. It, it doesn't bring in anywhere near as much mm. money as performing does, but um, still I've been very busy and I'm just literally going from one project to the next. I finished uh, a project. Uh, uh, I finished two projects in the last couple of months, three really. And now, and I have three more ahead of me. So um, that's helping me. That helps me to think when I'm putting my own work in between. Uh, I, when COVID hit, I, I had a bunch of new material I was working on and that kind of stalled because there's no place mm. to do it. So I sort of put that aside and put some more of that effort into, into writing. So, but in, if I think back to that stuff I was working on, it had to do, some of it had to do with venue. I was working a relatively new gig called Speakeasy Magic that Todd Robbins is involved with in New York City. I don't know if it's going to come back after COVID, but a really, truly unique close-up magic gig that had some very specific demands. And it took me months of experimenting and refining and making changes to come up mm -hmm. with, I only needed a 12-minute set, but it was a very challenging 12 minutes under very particular conditions. And in the course of developing that set, even though I actually have a huge repertoire, um, or at least also have a like a huge older repertoire that I could fall that might not be active, but I could fall back on, um, I actually ended up, you know, putting together like two new things because they suited the conditions. They were things I long I was long interested in, had familiarity. It's very rare almost impossible. I mean, it really almost never happens that I go, Oh, there's a new trick that just came out. I'm going to go do that. Um, mm. I learned a lot about that from my friend and mentor, Michael Skinner. I would ask him about the latest thing and he'd go, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think I'll wait a few years till things die down a little bit. And when it's not the hottest thing, maybe I'll go look at that. <laughs> and that's not a bad, you know, way to look at things. And, a couple of the most major things I have added over the years, over the recent years, have been things I've been thinking about for literally decades. So now that's my particular process. My buddy Steve Spill, who's put out these fantastic books in the last couple of years, Magic is My Weed and the Steve Spill and Steve Spill's How to Make Love. Uh, Steve was always a guy who, for as much of a deep thinker and original, one of the most original creative magicians I've ever known, um, you know, he would get an idea and three days later he'd go figure out where he could put it on stage and try it out, which always amazed me. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. Process is different. I, I tend to think about things a very long time. And when I was more actively in search and need of material, when I read books, I would, if I saw a trick that really interested me, wow, I could see myself doing this. This is really nice. 
I would photocopy that trick and put that in its own folder. And I always had about 20 things in that folder, I guess, something like that. And if I, you know, felt like working on something new, I didn't have to wander through my library or my catalog or my drawers. I would pull that folder out and say, okay, what do I want to learn, work on here? And very often I'd have that thing. Yeah, this is a great trick. Like I was saying before, I don't think it's a Jamie trick. I think I'll have to just admire that trick from afar. But, oh, this, I've been thinking about this trick for, you know, 30 years. Maybe I should work on that. Maybe that would be fun. And that tends to be what happens is that things bubble to the surface for me very, very slowly. Yeah, I, I always find it really interesting to hear people's, like, creative process uh, and just kind of, like, their expansion and, and, and how that works and one thing I've noticed there is that you have things written down. I think that's really important. Yeah, um, things written down. and But also my manner of approach is different because through much of my working career, especially when I was really developing stuff and expanding my repertoire and expanding my range in terms of venues and things, I was always writing scripts, always writing elaborate scripts. I always overwrite the first draft and then I'm constantly editing and refining and things like that. And, uh, you know, somewhere I know I have uh, a, a file, uh, it might still even be on my computer, with like 20 versions of scripts for the egg bag. That, wow. You know, um, and some of those I never used any and some of those I pulled one sentence for, uh, from. Right. But um, over the years, that has changed somewhat. And as I got a stronger and stronger sense of my persona, and my point of view, my inherent point of view, I now tend to write scripts in a much more minimal way where I write the things I have to write that I have to have. In other words, I have to have an opening line or two or three. I have to have the closing line. I might have to have certain managing lines, right? For misdirection, for the process, the management of the props, the management of the spectators. Okay. Those are going to be worded a certain way. Instructions to the spectator, especially, are always going to be carefully, carefully parsed and memorized. But a lot of the through stuff, the fill, I'm not going to put on the page anymore. I'm going to put. I'm going to go out in front of the audience and let it happen. Um, but I don't recommend that as an initial approach. That is a change that mm. came in my approach about halfway through my career when I had enough craft at that point, craft, that I knew I could get this trick out there and, it would, and I would put my efforts into practice, of course. This has nothing to do with practice. I'm talking about scripting. I would be sufficiently practiced <clears throat> that I could pull the thing off uh, successfully, but I would let some of the quote unquote presentation arise naturally. And that's something that has changed in my process over the years. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested. What, where did that kind of, did the, where did that begin? Like, I mean, that's changed. Well, like, I when... can tell you exactly where it began and it's a horrifying story. 
Perfect. Uh, or at least it's it's not going to sound horrifying to you, but it was horrifying for me. <laughs> so in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, well, let's see. In in around 1998, I moved to Vegas for a year. I lived in Pendulette's guest house because mm-hmm. I became a writer and a producer on Penn and Teller's Sin City Spectacular, which was their first TV series on the and it was on the FX channel. It was a variety show, an hour-long live-on-tape variety show mm-hmm. shot on the stage in uh, casino hotels in Las Vegas with Penn and Teller interacting with guests of all kinds. And the only time in their careers they ever hired any writers <clears throat> because of the volume of work. And they were basically like Penn and Teller and about four other writers. And we would mm-hmm. create all this original material. A lot of it was sort of Penn and Teller sketches almost. Penn and Teller routines that we could plug an actor or an actress into or singer, something like that. It's hard to describe, and unfortunately, due to some questionable questions about controversy about ownership, the show is not up on YouTube. There's a couple of routines you can find on YouTube mm-hmm. been put up by individuals. Unfortunately, it was 24 hours of really interesting television. I'm very proud of, but um, you can't see it. Anyway, uh, it was a great year for me because I was working with two of the greatest artists in our art two of the most creative, hardworking people I've ever met. And I was working with them every day, you know, six days a week, seven days during the production weeks, and just living, eating the show. Uh, And I learned a lot, and I also learned a lot about television uh, to work on the other side of the camera. And I didn't perform uh, for about a year. I came back to New York, and... um, one of the things I worked on secondarily was Mike Close and I worked on an original show uh, that was sort of a close-up, big close-up parlor type show, two-man show, not as a team per se, but a two-man show in Vegas that we wrote and was directed by Teller. Um, the show never happened. It did get showcased a couple of times. The show never happened. But when I got back to New York, um, I didn't have any work because the agents had moved on to other people. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, had long, I had been interested for quite some time in getting involved in the Memorized Deck. And obviously, yeah. you know, Mike was one of the early influences there. And so I started working on the Memorized Deck uh, around, I guess, 99. And within a short time, by 2000, uh, originally I, I thought it was for my close-up work, but within a pretty quick amount of time, I got interested in what you could do on platform with it in the way of, let's call it mental magic. And I put, uh, I, I decided to mount a show in the New York uh, Fringe Festival, and I mounted an original show. And the second half of the show was these long monologue pieces couple of ideas that I'd had that I'd never been able to put on stage in front of my corporate audiences. So I had a couple of very, very long monologue pieces. Uh, one of which was based on that essay I talked about real secrets about the color vision box, where I basically told mm-hmm. that whole story about my dad and a related story about my first childhood crush as it connected with that trick. And I turned it into a state, like a 13 minute stage piece. But the first half of the show, I didn't have enough material like that to make a whole show. So the first half of that show was a brand new act. It was a platform act done with a deck of cards. 
And what it really was, was it was a, basically more or less a Memdeck act. Um, hmm. And it was all new. Meanwhile, I was producing Monday Night Magic. I'm one of the original producers of Monday Night Magic, along with Todd Robbins, Peter Samuelson, Michael Chout, and in those days, the late Frank Brenz. And um, I would, I was one of the two, head, uh, sorry, the two MCs at Monday Night Magic. In those days, it was just Todd and Todd Robbins and myself, alternating weeks. And I was in the cycle of headliners. We had about a half a dozen headliners. I was one of them. And I decided to use the headline spots as an opportunity to create an entirely new show, a new act, which was partly this card act that I created. And then that expanded into a mentalism show, uh, which mentalism had long been of interest to me. And I had done, I had been doing mentalism in a on the platform since the eighties, but mostly in sort of lecture dem kind of settings in the skeptical. So now mm -hmm. I wanted to try and turn it into a mentalism show. Well, here's the thing. In that interim period, sort of before I got into the mental, I started on the mentalism show or at the very beginnings of it. But in the interim period where I was working on this card show, what I had done was I had thrown out all of my platform stuff. See, I became a, when I became a professional magician, I became this magic bar worker pretty quickly. And I got really good really fast because when you're doing it five nights a week, in a challenging situation like the bar, it's just like working trade shows on the street. You either get good or you get eaten alive. And it was a great education. But I never had, you know, you could put a new trick in behind the bar and in two weeks you've done it a hundred times. Now, I never had that opportunity as a platform magician. And so I had developed platform material that I did at corporate events that was sort of utility comedy magic. It was, there was originality to it for sure, but it wasn't fully satisfying for me. It really wasn't entirely me. It was serving my market. And so what I did was I threw that show away <laughs> and I, and I put together wow. a, a set of material that was of interest to me picked out an opener and a closer, the two hardest things in, in that order. And with a minimum of script, a minimum of script, I went out on stage and did it and kept doing it. And I forced myself <laughs> to do it without a lot of scripting because I knew if I sat and I wrote the script, I would be writing for that other guy who had been doing that other act. And I needed to break away from that so radically to force myself away from it that I would leave myself kind of abandoned without a life raft, without a safety net on stage and just fighting my way through the material, trying to make a connect with an audience and figuring out what the hell happened along the way. It was extremely difficult. It was really rattling and unnerving and it a lot of it didn't work a lot of it was just bad and i i knew that but it was the only way i could see to fight my way through to something new and a close confidant who saw a lot of it an accomplished performer and a good friend 
it was so bad at one point that this person came to me and said, in all seriousness, you have to stop this. You have to stop what you're doing. It's not working. And I knew that that was born of great sincerity and that it took great courage to say it. It was incredibly painful to hear. Hmm. And it was really hard to say to myself, you know where you're going, where you're trying to go with this. We, it's perfectly understandable that he doesn't and he can't see it. And you're going to have to keep going anyway, even after this conversation. Hmm. And eventually, after, I don't know, two years of that misery, gradually changing, gradually developing, I began to get a handle on who I really was on stage, which is not exactly the same as who I am in close up, but who I was, who I wanted to be, how I wanted to be a reflection of me. It was a different tone, you know, and uh, for better or for worse, uh, it became, it changed the way I work. And it also got me on stage as a truer reflection of myself. And I love that. Um, I think something that particularly touched me about what you were saying is that ability to <laughs> kind of sift through and kind of focus on your vision. Because um, that's not an easy thing to do, um, especially when you hear people that you really respect tell you that what you're doing isn't right. Uh, the power, that the willpower that, that takes to press forward is is impressive. And also that when you have stuff that works, when you have things that work, and get you and get the audience what you want to give them and get you what you want back from them. It's very scary to walk away from that. You know, my buddy, Chris Corn, one of the best magicians I know, one of the finest sleight of hand close up workers out there. Um, he, he just did this penguin live lecture. I have to tell you now, I don't get to watch a lot of those lectures. I, I, I don't have time to absorb a fraction of the content that comes my way every day. (laughs) You know, I I always end up with 20 windows open in my browser because I want to watch this and look at this and read this. And, oh, my my lawyer, one of my best friends, who's also my lawyer, and he's also a musician, and he sent me this clip yesterday of an hour of Steely Dan talking about how they made Asia. Like, I'm dying to watch that. Um, You know, so... I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't have enough time, but Chris was putting something in this lecture that I knew about that I've always been interested in and I've always liked. And um, I think he actually sent me the lecture and I sat and I watched it. And it, this thing is phenomenal. This lecture is so phenomenal. Hmm. And the tragedy of this lecture is I think they're selling it for, I don't know. 40 bucks or 35 dollars or 35 mm-hmm. something like this and it's a damn shame because what passes for content and magic these days where you're paying these ridiculous prices for these little downloads or whatever like the problem with what chris did was and there's a reason i'm talking about this i'll, I'll get to it in a moment what 
I called him up and I said, just like a week ago, and I said, dude, there's two tricks in there that if you would pull them out and sold them as a download and put the word project in the title and said, it's $80 for these two five minutes of coin match. You would have sold more, you would have made more money, and people would have noticed it for what it's actually worth. And instead, he's got another, you know, he's another three hours for 30 bucks in the great mountain heap, the great, you know, river of shit that's constantly flowing downhill that we're all drowning in. But the reason I'm mentioning this to you is because I know why Chris did that lecture. And it wasn't because he needed the money. He did that lecture because he took all of his core repertoire, the stuff he's been making a living on for God knows, 30 years in close-up magic, 20, 25 years in close-up magic. Stuff I've seen that I know he makes his living on. I mean, stuff that we've discussed over the years, whatever. Um, and he said, I'm only... I, I, I'm going to put all this crap out so that I can for, I'll force, it'll force me to start working mm. on something new. And he said to me on the phone, you know what? It worked. It just totally sparked my creativity and I'm working on all this new stuff. Uh, so I think, you know, that's something that, that many people do from time to time. The great George Carlin, one of the two greatest comics I grew up worshiping, uh, through most of his later life, you know, he did a new Showtime special every two years. He would write it, he would work it on the road, and then he would tape it. Um, you know, uh, Louis C.K., his personal problems notwithstanding, was considered the ultimate comics comic at the peak of his career. Mm -hmm. And con I can't tell you how many comics I talked to who were absolutely astonished that Louis would throw his act out once a year and start all over again, year after year after year. Um, you know, it's a it's a very it's a long ways. The world has come a long ways since Cardini, you know, one of the greatest silent acts in the history of magic, greatest manipulative acts in the history of magic, but went around the world doing you know twelve minutes. Hmm. Not anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. I, I think that's that's like an it's something I've never even thought about. So, so thank you. Like, I mean, I don't even like. It's just a really interesting thing to think about. Just like, does it really speak to yourself? And if it doesn't, what should you do with it? And the confidence to be able to take that leap into pure like you know, it felt it, it felt yeah. anything but confident. There was no confidence in it. There was only, <laughs> no, no, really. I had no confidence at all. What right. I had was desperation. I had desperation right. as an artist. I had managed to do the impossible. I had managed to have a career, change a career in midlife and have a successful career, making my living, paying my rent, traveling, doing magic tricks. Now what? Well, now what is I want to be a better artist. And the way to be a better artist is to be find a more genuine expression of myself. 
through my arm. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, the one mistake, strategic, some of it is strategic by design. Some of it was just circumstance. I did not have the opportunity to polish myself in a thousand stage shows, as some do. And, you know, that most important piece of practical advice, which I learned too late, because since I'd already been making a living as a close-up magician, and I was making a living as a high-priced close-up magician in New York fucking city, <laughs> so I didn't want to go work stage shows for free. I didn't want to work cheap on platform. I didn't want to work an open night, right? Because I was spoiled by my own success. But I didn't realize that walking up on the platform was really doing an entirely different thing. It was a kind of starting over. And what I should have done, and what everybody should do at first, is to just do every show you can possibly do. And that doesn't mean working for cheap in the sense of under underselling your competition, because that if you do that, that hurts everybody. You're actually better off if the going price is fifteen hundred in your in your demographic, then you know, for whatever it is, just a random number, then don't go out and work for three hundred dollars because you need the work, because that hurts everybody. Go out and work for free and give it away and get good, get good. Do every show possible. And this is, you know, Penn and Teller, they did a billion shows and they, and they, and when, and when they got together, Teller was a high school Latin teacher doing magic on the side. And when they got together, Penn said, okay, you have to quit your job. We have to stop screwing around and we have to decide we're never going to do anything for money. That's not magic. Oh, well, that's not our show. And we will do our show anywhere, anytime, anyhow, any opportunity, any price. And that's, and that's what they did. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, talking of kind of finding yourself and your own kind of persona, um, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about where this phrase, like the honest liar came from, um, where that kind of yeah, originated. So the idea, I, I don't know that we can pin an origin to the phrase, but the idea hmm. certainly really comes significantly from the late James Randi. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, oddly, or maybe not so oddly, but when they made this, wonderful documentary about him called An Honest Liar, when those filmmakers came to me and said, hey, we'd like to introduce, we'd like to interview you for this documentary we're making. Oh, mm. about Randy? Yeah, sure, great. I was a, by that point, I was a senior fellow at the James Randy Educational Foundation. I'd been in skepticism for years. Um, I said, great, what's the name of the film? And they said, An Honest Liar. And I kind of stopped and went, do you understand that Honest Liar has been my brand for 20 years, 25 years? <laughs> and they went, uh, well, yeah, but we didn't know it at the time because we bought anhonestliar.com and it never occurred to us to look for honestliar.com. Hmm. And that kind of blew my mind and made me grumpy. and. Um, they were kind enough that when you, if you watch the film, which is available on the streaming services, 
uh, in the fine print in the credits, I didn't ask them to do this. I didn't make them do this. But um, they actually put a little thing in the, in the credits crawl that says, you know, Jamie and Swiss has long been known as the honest liar. Something like that. Blah, blah, blah. So, but the idea of honest lying is very much an idea that James Randi articulated at great length in articulating what the social contract is between a magician and the audience. And that the moment you use the term magician, conjurer, deception, tricks, illusion, the moment you start to invoke any of those words, you're really making a statement. You're really putting a contract between yourself and the audience, an agreement, a set of mutually agreed upon terms and conditions, which is, I'm going to fool you. I'm going to use deception to create beautiful illusions to engage and entertain you, but I'm not going to try and alter your worldview. And I'm going to bring you back where you started in a, in a safe, in a safe way. Uh, and that I'm lying to you for a purpose. Uh, and I'm lying to you within very specific parameters. And that the stronger and clearer you are on this, the easier it is for the audience to parse without, and sense without you even saying anything when you're lying and when you're telling the truth. Of course, they, they don't always... I won't say when. That's not true. Part of magic is they don't know when. But they understand as it's unfolding that there are times you really are telling them the truth, speaking as yourself, and that you definitely are doing both. You know, uh, audiences need to trust you as a performer. And even though they know that a magician is lying to them and dealing in deception, ultimately still... You have to develop a bond of trust with them. And you do that by having a sense of purpose, a sense of consistency, a sense of uh, a rigor in what you have to say, what you're trying to communicate. And that's what makes, these are the things that make magic interesting. The reason magic is, magic, magic is an inherently secular art in that the audience must understand the difference between what's real and what's not real in order to appreciate your ability to demonstrate what is clearly unreal. <laughs> and from that, that produces this sense of dissonance that makes magic unique in the performing arts and engaging. Part of it is the discomfort, which many magicians are afraid of, but that's actually part of the product of good magic. One of my favorite theoreticians in magic is also a great performer and a great magician but one of my favorite theoreticians of magic is the magician known as pop hayden formerly wit hayden and buried in some of those wonderful handful of manuscripts that he's written the three card notes on three card monty and also a little manuscript called the chicago surprise buried in those very practical expert books are a few pages of theory, of magic theory, of what the magic experience is. And I don't think anything has been written in the history of magic that's more cogent and articulate than Witt's ideas about this. He says that in magic, you mount 
the audience on the on the blade of a dilemma. And on one side, it can't be magic because there's no such thing. On the other side, it must be magic because there's no other explanation. And try as they might to try and step down comfortably on one side or the other, they cannot comfortably do it. And the longer and harder you can suspend them up there, leave them permanently suspended up there, the, to me, that's the, the most successful you can be in creating the experience of mystery that magic is about. And then he goes on to say, he calls this, this dissonance that people experience with magic, he says, this dissonance will keep coming back to them and troubling them like a burr under the saddle of the mind. Beautiful phrase, like a burr mm -hmm. under the saddle of the mind. And then he also says, <clears throat> it's not so comfortable to be perched on this pointy place, he says. And so magicians try and make it more palatable by accompanying it with personality and costume and music and story and humor. He says, the sword of magic is concealed in the cloak of theater. Wow. Yeah. That's stunning prose. Yeah, stunning prose. That's right. I agree. And a stunning idea. And I think it's the, it's the greatest thing we can strive for. It's what we're trying to do. But it's very, very hard to do that. And as my friend Max Maven has long said, magicians are afraid of magic. They're afraid. Mm -hmm. What he means is they're afraid of that dissonance. They want to please everybody. They want to get that next booking. They don't want to get to offend anyone. And, you know, somebody once said, uh, I don't know any surefire formula for success, but I know one surefire formula for failure. Try and please everybody. Hmm. And this is why you end up with this endless pablum of mediocre magic that doesn't distinguish one person from the other, one act from another, because nobody wants to take any chances and nobody wants, and they use magic as a mask instead of as a revelation, instead of as a doorway. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, talking about that, that, dissonance that you just mentioned um that's something that i've, I've seen you touch on quite a lot in a, in a lot of your lectures that you've given around um scientific uh, skepticism and, and people that don't know uh you i know that you, you're in a bunch of uh skeptics organizations but you're the co-founder of the, the national capital area skeptics and a co-founder of new york city skeptics right. um and that was one of the things that you were talking about a lot in um what does a villain see in the mirror i noticed um <laughs> And I, I, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about just about skepticism in general, if you would be able to give me kind of like a sure, so, elevator pitch on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So scientific skepticism is a social movement that um, the current iteration of which has been around for maybe 50 years. It started with um, uh, the creation of an organization that was originally called PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific mm. Investigation of claims of the paranormal. Eventually that name was changed to CSI. Um, and uh, as I say, that's only the current iteration of skepticism. Skepticism has been around for a long time, but it's a, 
essentially a social movement that tries to promote critical thinking, rational inquiry, and the scientific worldview. Um, and in that role, among other things, besides promoting science, it also tries to serve as a kind of a consumer advocate for the public. Uh, part of that is about educating people about pseudoscientific claims uh, and other deceptions. Part of it is about debunking uh, pseudoscientific claims or, or products in certain, certain cases. Um, I have a broad, broad interest in deception, not only in the terms of magic, but I've lectured to police and prosecutors about street cons, and I've lectured about and investigated phony psychics. Well, that's a redundancy, but um, uh, I've talked about that. I've, I've uh, done a little work in, in casino security. So I'm interested in cheating and all kinds, all its many forms. Mm. Um, but scientific skepticism especially is focused on, although all of those things can be part of it, is especially focused on, again, promoting a scientific worldview and promoting critical thinking and rational inquiry. Now, it goes back centuries. The connection between magic and magicians and critical thinking can easily be pointed in the literature to the first book that ever included magic tricks in English, which is Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott, published in 1584. That's not a book about mm -hmm. magic, but it has a little second. It's actually a book debunking the witchcraft trials of James in England, just pre-James. Pre um, but there's a little 20-page section on magic that became, you know, basically formed the magic literature and constant thefts and reprints of various sorts over the next century. Um, but the point is, is that it used magic as an, to illustrate ideas about evidence, quality of evidence. And it's a skeptical book. It's not entirely skeptical. It doesn't, reflecting the times, it, it doesn't entirely dismiss the notion of witches. But it basically says, there might be witches, but I don't think the ones we're convicting are, the, are, are, are because I don't think that <laughs> the, the evidence is being well presented. And here's how simple deception can fool the smartest people with math. If we can do that with magic tricks like this, it can certainly happen <clears throat> in some of these claims of witchcraft and so on. So that's a long history. And then of course, all magicians know to some degree or other that when spiritualism came on the scene in 1848, uh, Harry Houdini famously in this country, other magicians in this country and also in England, like uh, masculine, uh, became outspoken in debunking uh, phony spirit mediums. And that was really, uh, you know, a perfect example of the magician's role because Harry was around at the birth of parapsychology as a sort of alleged science. You know, the first committee on, on the paranormal was created by Scientific American magazine, and there was, and Harry Houdini was offering a prize, a cash prize, personal prize for anyone who could demonstrate paranormal ability that he couldn't explain. That would eventually not only put an end to spiritualism just about the time of Harry's death, but for about 50 years until a you know struggling magician from Israel came forward. And once again, tried to offer physical evidence for the existence of the paranormal, in his case, by bending spoons. And in the place of 
Harry Houdini, came James Randi, who wrote a book called The Magic of Uri Geller in the 70s, debunking those claims and offering a personal prize of $10,000, uh, which eventually became the Million Dollar Challenge run by the Randi Foundation, which I helped administer along with a committee of other experts, including uh, my longtime friend and colleague, Banachek. Um, and we offered a million-dollar prize that was kept in escrow for anyone who could demonstrate a paranormal ability under mutually agreed-upon test conditions, slightly different framing than Houdini's. And for a number of years, at what was then the world's largest skeptic conference, known as TAM, the amazing meeting that occurred annually in Vegas and would sometimes get as many as 1,000 attendees, um, <clears throat> the last day of TAM, Banachek, myself, and the rest of the committee, uh, including uh, uh, board member uh, Chip Denman, who was a st statistician and also had a background in magic, um, we would do a live test for the Million Dollar Challenge on stage to conclude the convention. And a number of those are up on YouTube. So um, I've been a science geek all my life. Uh, when I first got into entered college, my brief college career, I, uh, I thought I might head to the sciences, changed my mind, uh, went into the retail business, and then eventually didn't become an artist until much later. Um, but the point was, was that um, I read Randy's book. When I was a boy and I heard about Houdini, I was fascinated by the exposures of the phony psychics. I was more interested in that than I was by the escapes. When I read Randy's book in the 1970s, it didn't, it wasn't news to me that Yuri Geller was doing sleight of hand, but it radicalized me in terms of thinking about the consequences of that. Uh, and the rest hmm. went from there. And eventually I met Randy and became a colleague, working colleague. Uh, start, and again, as you said, started a number of regional organizations that are still in existence today. And my next book, I'm not sure when it's going to come out. I'm hoping by the end of this year. But Vanishing Inc. has a series of these little books called The Astonishing Essays. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the next one of those, I think, that comes out is one of, my, is one of mine called The Conjuring Conundrum. It's about 30,000 words, and it's a small book about my history. In about the first half is about the history of skepticism and magic and the intersection, and the second half is about my own personal history in that world. Okay, well, that'll be definitely one to watch then because uh, that'll, that'll be a really interesting book to read. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it coming out. Yeah, yeah. well, I am now too. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's one more thing. I, yeah, touching on that, there's something that you said that I thought was really interesting that uh, I would love to, to bring out and highlight for a second um, was you talked about this concept of not blaming the victim Yes. Um, when it comes to this sort of thing. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit? More yeah, it's that? really hard these days, especially what we've experienced here in the United States in the last uh, four years. Um, this is a hard thought to hang on to sometimes. It's uh, even a hard thought for me, even though I've spoken about it. Yeah, you that's you a, are that's referring... <laughs> to a talk. There's a whole lot of my skeptic talks up on YouTube, but um, all mostly from, well, at various magic, uh, sorry, at various skeptic conferences. The one you're 
um, I'm trying to think. You're not talking about credit the con man. You're talking about oh, you are talking about credit the con man actually. Yeah. So there's a talk called credit the con man, and once of one of the things that I talk about there is trying not to blame the victim, and especially as a skeptic, we're involved in very often in things like exposing phony psychics, and phony psychics are a hateful, miserable, morally corrupt, morally criminal uh, class, criminal class, who cause tremendous damage, most of which is under the radar and not seen. They routinely rob people, very often elderly people, literally of life savings. Um, If you look into this in the slightest way, there are Many court cases, especially in New York and Florida, where a lot of the Romani culture, uh, phony psychic mobs uh, work. Um, A friend of mine by the name of Bob Nygaard, N-Y-G-A-A-R-D, you look him up. He is a retired New York cop who is now based in Florida and he specializes, he's a private investigator now, who specializes not just in He's not interested in exposing phony psychics. What he's interested in is getting them arrested and prosecuted and trying Mm -hmm. to get recompense for their victims. He is a, he's like a superhuman. He's like some comic book hero. He's a really great character. And um, his stuff is worth looking at. Uh, And, but the thing about it is, is that Part of the difficulty in getting these people arrested and getting their victims restored is that people think, oh, if you gave $100,000 to someone who was you know, telling you they were going to fix your love life with a magic potion, then you, know, you deserve what you get. How, how could you be stupid enough to fall for that? And what's, <laughs> and what's not understood is that professional con artists of every stripe, doesn't matter whether you're tossing Monty or you're a psychic or you're doing, you know, roofing scams or or love scams, whatever it is, these people are polished, ruthless professionals who have developed a skill set, a very specific skill set that enables them to do what they do. And the average person uh, who is unfamiliar with these things, anyone under the right circumstances can be victimized. Anyone can be the victim of a scam. Maybe not that particular scam because you you know something about it. You recognize it. But, you know, a lot of New Yorkers are amazed that someone could lose money to a three-card Monte game. Well, that's because New Yorkers are raised with the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so they walk by the game and they don't even stop and look. But the tourists stop and look. And the way you get hooked on a Monty game is by stopping and looking. And once you're watching, they have all of these strategies to hook you in. Well, it's the same thing with these vicious uh, psychic con artists. And in order to understand what's going on there, you have to really look into it a little more deeply, understand the tools they use, 
understand that they're preying on people who are vulnerable for one reason or another. There's no more morally vicious criminal on earth than the talk to the dead psychics like John Edward or James Von Prague, because they are preying specifically on people who are grieving. And when you're in a weakened state, you can be taken in. This uh, famous romance novelist who was part of a case of prosecution in Florida just a few years ago, where she had gone, she had been a victim of, she'd lost millions of dollars over 20 years. And you go, well, gee, how could that happen? Well, among other things, she lost a child. There's no worse tragedy that a human being can experience than to bury their own child. And that was a part of what that psychic used against her to bring her in. And then you have to look at, you really have to learn something about how cognitive dissonance works. There's a wonderful book I always recommend. Um, I, it's a bestseller, but I'm pleased to know, that, eventually come to know the author very well. Her name is Carol Tavish. She's a prominent social scientist written a whole lot of books, including college textbooks, as well as books for the public. And she wrote a great book a few years ago, co-wrote it, called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And it's a book about how cognitive dissonance works. And even if you think you understand something about cognitive dissonance, because perhaps you've read the famous book from the 50s, When Prophecy Fails, um, when you read this book, what's remarkable about it is and it's not a dense book. It's a really entertaining book. Um, you can't go three pages without recognizing something of yourself or someone you know. Because cognitive dissonance is deeply wired into the human brain millions of years ago. Because we are a species that both has consciousness and is also has cognitive biases that lead us to make mistakes. And somehow we have to live with those mistakes. And so the brain evolved this way of dealing with, with that dissonance in order to help save us from that experience, help us survive and continue to adapt from that experience and go forward from that experience. And it's something like many cognitive biases, like selection bias, et cetera, that works within all of us. And it takes a great effort to try and overcome. And until you study something about cognitive dissonance, it's hard to understand. Then you can begin to understand why someone who is a victim of a Ponzi scheme, con artist like Bernie Madoff, went and when started to lose money, put a second mortgage in their home and invested more. Why people doubled down. And so... You can't really, as I always tell skeptics, if you're trying to change the world, if you're trying to educate people, if you're trying to protect them, you, if you blame the victim, if you say that these things happen because of people's cupidity uh, or gullibility, then you have no insight into the mechanism of what's happening, and therefore you can't help them at all. Now, so I, I, I try to counsel against blaming the victim, against considering someone, you know, is at the fault for their own victimhood. But I admit, by the same token, you also have to hold people responsible for their actions. Now, in the case of if you're a victim of a phony psychic, then you're a victim. That's it. You are a victim. You're not a perpetrator. You're a victim. 
But if you are a believer of conspiracy theories and then you go out in the world and you act on it, right? If you're mm. a racist, a QAnon follower, a right-wing white power zealot, um, all of these things might have come, though they certainly come, from bad thinking. Bad thinking yields to bad, leads to bad decisions, leads to bad results. The anti-vaccination movement, pre-COVID, the anti-vaccination movement has killed countless thousands of children who didn't have to die, but mm. because of bad thinking leading to bad choices and decisions, which is don't vaccinate your children, leading to bad outcomes, dead children. And now we're fighting this virus in this country and many more of us will die because of bad thinking leading to bad decisions, leading to bad outcomes. And those bad decisions are not wearing masks, not getting vaccinated. So in the end, you have to hold people responsible for their actions. And you especially have to hold them responsible for their actions when it affects other people. We learn more and more that schizophrenia and psychopathy is uh, partly biological, maybe almost entirely biological. It doesn't mean that we're not going to hold a psychopathic killer responsible legally for his actions. But it does mean that maybe as we learn more, we could treat him differently and maybe help change his situation or help prevent it in others in the future. So you have to distinguish between understanding how people are victimized and deliberately victimized. Um, but you also have to hold them account for their actions. But you should at least, people who are purely victims, like the victims of these love letter scams or, or uh, psychic, phony psychics or whatever, they're purely victims. They're not promoting anything. And frankly, anyone who goes in and spends 20 bucks on a bottle of homeopathic quote-unquote medication is a victim of a billion-dollar business that is a complete con where you're spending mm -hmm. money for jars that contain literally nothing, just inert materials, water, salt, sugar, just basically inert materials. And that might seem harmless to you on first blush because, well, what's the harm? Well, the harm is, among many other things, what else could we do with those billions of dollars that we spend every year on nothing? And uh, I know you mentioned on YouTube, there's a, I don't know, about eight or 10 of these 10 minute commentaries of mine called The Honest Liar. And mm -hmm. one of them is that one you mentioned about what does the villain see in the mirror? And another one is about homeopathy. And they're sort of 10 minute rants that try to be informative and entertaining about these kind of subjects and how skepticism affects real life and has real life consequences. And there's even a one about another subject of great interest to me, which is baseball and why deception is plays a key role in the game of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that everyone that's listening, definitely go check this out because they will expand your mind in a big way. And it's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time. If you want to be, a more interesting magician become a more interesting person so that, that's a definitely a, a good way to do that um I, I love what you said as well because it's also interesting to, to talk about the fact that you know like 
everyone can be con, you know. Like uh, one of the people I I really like listening to is called Dan Kennedy, and he's a famous copywriter, and uh, he tells a story about how, and, and I I don't remember the exact specifics, so I won't even try. But um, he tells a story about how there was basically this huge scheme where these people basically bought a piece of land in a desert, put some pipes in it, and then flew some of the most rich influential people in the world over it in a helicopter, wind them and dined them and told them there's a bunch of oil here. And I think it was just, wow. there was nothing there. And uh, <laughs> these insanely rich people, you know, that, right. that literally, you know, they're so rich, they would have to try extremely hard to become bankrupt, <laughs> invested it in this scheme, right? And wow. became, and, and lost so much money on it. And, and it was, Dan Kennedy was making the point of, you know, uh, he talked about these kind of seven keys to copywriting um, or the seven sins of copywriting <laughs> of like greed, you know, uh, lust, you know, all these negative emotions that copywriters use to get you to buy a product. Ah. Uh, and it, it's the same thing in the way of what you're talking about. At least it's for me, it relates for me. Um, everyone can be, everyone can be got by an ad, <laughs> you know, and, and right. in the same way, right. everyone can be got by a con man. Um, and, uh, like you say, I've, I really like that that distinction of um, not blaming the victim, but rather um, going after those those that, that yep. um, victimize them. Yeah, and it's the only um, way you're going to change any of it is by mm-hmm. at least having. You might not always have empathy, depending on what the outcomes have been. Again, if they're harmful right. outcomes impacting other people's lives, but you should at least be able to have some empathy. As, and some insight and understanding as to how it happens. Because if you think it just happens because of stupidity or even just because of greed, that's not true. Every con artist says you can't cheat an honest man. Well, that's a nice cover story, but it's actually not true. <laughs> and in fact, one of the most famous and hard to understand cons in history, the pigeon drop, is based on people's out, the victim's altruism, not on their greed. yeah and and also just yeah it's just like you say it's anyone everyone has something that they want you know and like everyone has those desires and all of us could end up in that path and i would hope that if i ended up being kind of in that way that people will have the same sort of um understanding towards me that's kind of like a pay it forward yeah absolutely absolutely it's also a premise of the american criminal justice system you know i really I really, I just despise when I hear somebody talking about some clever way they figured out how to get out of jury service. Because to mm. me, there's no greater responsibility as a citizen than doing jury than doing jury duty. And in fact, in many places in this country, it actually counts for more than voting. The, the two biggest responsibilities, primary responsibilities we have as citizens. And, you know, I want to do the best job I can on a jury, which I've done a number of times in my life, because in the hopes that under who knows what unimaginable circumstance, I'm the one in the courtroom uh, at the defendant's table, I hope someone else will come and do like me and Hmm. try to do a fair and responsible job. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, it's 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 been an absolute pleasure to listen to you. Honestly, I've I've 
I've learned so much. I <laughs> I don't want to take too much of your your time, but I would love to ask you one one final question. Okay. Um, it's something that I I think we've touched on it quite quite a lot actually during this anyway. Um, but and it's something that I I first we first asked Andy Gladwin, and he asked us just to ask about a bunch of other magicians about it because he didn't quite have a a, a full conclusive answer for us. Um, but I'd love to hear, and I, I think of, I've, you know, I've kind of got a lot of your background of kind of why you do magic, but obviously, like you were saying that there are real geniuses in magic and who are solving magic problems, <laughs> um, and who are creating new magic. And I guess the question would be why, why invest so much time in magic? What does it bring to people? What does it bring to yourself and what does it bring to others? And why should people spend time doing magic? Oh boy. Um, so when I, I had two careers before I ever did magic for money. Um, unlike most of many of my friends in high school, college who did kids shows, uh, I didn't do that. I was in a band. Hmm. Uh, and that was my first paying job as an artist, um, was as a musician, uh, so I literally, when I, when I changed careers and I took a year off between careers, uh, to prepare. And when I did, when I booked my first two, as it happens, they were two corporate holiday events in New York city. Uh, those were the first dollars I'd ever made as a magician. I didn't change careers because I thought magic was any more, um, important in the world than anything else I had done. Uh, I changed it because I wanted to do something. I had been good at other things I had done, but, uh, and in some ways they had been important to me, but I wanted to do something that was just more important to me, that mattered more to me. No pretensions that it's any more or less important than anything else. Um, it meant something to me. And, you know, I, I realized too late, you know, it's funny, I was introduced to the arts very, very young. My parents were big believers in the arts. My mother was a talented amateur painter. My father was an amateur writer, poet. I, you know, I spent endless time going to art museums, reading, all of this. But I was also raised with, in a middle-class home with an implicit assumption that those were things that you did to broaden yourself. Those are things you did to expand your consciousness. Those were things you did to enjoy yourself. None of those things were things you did for a living. <laughs> you were going to get a college career and be a doctor <laughs> or a veterinarian or whatever the hell it was going to be. So, and I didn't really realize how those implicit assumptions and attitudes uh, what an incredible impact they had on me. And I was also, I mean, I should have recognized, for example, that I, I, I just should have been a writer, if nothing else, right from the start. Because even mm -hmm. in elementary school, by the time I was in seventh grade, they were ha I, I wrote a series of stories about an imaginary character that the school would hang on the bulletin board for all the kids in the school to read. And then in high school, I ended up editor-in-chief of the literary magazine. Now, those things don't mean anything by themselves, but they might have been a clue 
<laughs> you know, maybe I should, should have taken English or literature or something in, that, in college or whatever. And instead, I ended up hating college. I was, I was gone in a year, a year and a half. Um, but so when I became a professional creative, and I didn't even realize that's what I was doing per se when I became a magician. I thought I was becoming a magician. Instead, I have this pretty eclectic resume as a writer, editor, director. You know, I helped write. I don't know if you do you know who the artist, the musician Amanda Palmer is by any chance? I, I don't. Yeah. So. so she's a cult rock star. She had a band called um, uh, the the Dresden Dolls, and she's also mm. married to the writer. Uh, Neil Gaiman, hmm. and she was the number one Kickstarter, music Kickstarter, the biggest music Kickstarter ever. And she's currently, wow. the, and she's currently, I think, the number one artist income-wise on Patreon. And she's primarily a musician, but I also helped her write a book. I helped her write a TED Talk. You should go see the TED Talk just to get an idea who she is. It's called The Art of Asking. And yeah. it was a viral hit in 10 days, had a million views in 10 days. And I helped her write that talk. And then I helped her write her, what turned out, first-time author, best-selling New York Times bestseller called The Art of Asking, same title as the talk. And I, she's a really good friend of mine. Neil's a really good friend of mine. I traveled around the country with her for six months, helping her to write the book, not as a co-author, but as a kind of creative editor of sorts. Anyway, um, I, I have this eclectic resume as a, as a creative, as a professional creative. And that's the thing I should have realized much earlier that I should have been, which was a professional creative. You know, I love science. I'm an analytical thinker and, and I, you know, I'm well read and so on. But, uh, and, but I, I actually just should have been a, a professional creative, not even necessarily even a professional magician um, when all is said and done. Mm -hmm. So the point is, is, is that if you have the drive to be an artist, as, as an artist, as I said earlier, it's a means of expression, that you have a need to express yourself, but that you, are, you find challenges in finding that, that are inherent in expressing yourself in very particular ways through very particular media, whether it's through music or dance or painting or sculpture or song or magic, whatever, or literature. Uh, and it's about having ideas and expressing them in ways that other people find meaningful. Um, and so, that's why I ended up becoming a magician. And I happened to be obsessed with the literature of magic and the history of magic and the craft of magic. And it's what I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I don't think it's any more or less important than anything else, just like I didn't think it when I changed careers. But it is something I know a lot about. And I am compelled, I find myself compelled to keep thinking about it and keep generating ideas about it and keep writing about it. And uh, mm -hmm. as well as, of course, keep performing it because of the unique experience of, you know, in magic, you fall in love with the experience of magic and then you 
try and create, recreate it for others. And of course, the great irony is, the sometimes painful irony is, the better you get at, re at creating it for others, the harder it is for you to have that experience yourself. And so what mm. you do is, in an ideal world, is you work really hard to create the most perfect version of that experience for other people so that in turn you can live vicariously through their eyes and experience. You know, magicians hear sounds that no one else hears. Applause is nice. Laughs are nice. But there are moments in a magic show when I sometimes just want to stop and close my eyes and savor the sounds when you hear that murmur of people literally gasping or going, no way, or what the fuck? You, all that that you hear, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's great in a room of 20 people doing a close-up show. It's amazing in a theater of 300 or 1,000 people. <laughs> It's amazing. And not every artist gets to hear that. You know, it's been said that yeah. all art aspires to the level of music. And I totally get that. I love music. I can't go a day of my life without listening to music. Um, and I envy the experience of music, the collaborative experience that musicians have working with one another. Magic is a lonelier art. I also love the, that experience of, you know, nobody comes to a magic show and starts to shout out, you know, favorites, um, <laughs> you know, and that transcendent experience that you can get. I grew up going to rock concerts in the great golden age of rock. I saw Hendrix. I saw Joplin. We go down the list. And that transcendent experience of completely losing yourself in the music and losing yourself in your connection with the crowd. Like that doesn't happen very often in a magic show. Something different happens in a magic show. So a little bit of that can happen, not much. Um, because music is visceral and magic is intellectual. Uh, it doesn't mean that magic doesn't make you feel something emotional, but the pathway is in, of processing it is first intellectual. Um, so, you know, you can't unconsciously tap your foot to the beat of a magic illusion. So anyway, I love giving that experience. I love sharing that experience. I love recapturing that experience. I love, you know, when people say, Hi, ask about doing the same material over and over again. Yeah, but the audience makes it different every time. Hmm. You know, there are some tricks in my act for the, I, I play every room at the castle. Um, I'm one of the few who does that, you know, close up, the bar, parlor, plat, stage. Um, but in the, you know, there's a, some, and I do a different set. They don't require this. They should. I do a completely different set in every di different venue in the castle. Um, but there are elements of my close-up set, which is the thing I've been doing the longest at the castle, that had been there since the first night I ever played there and Vernon came to see me. And yet when I do it at the castle, and I'm doing 21 or 28 now a week. I'm still tweaking it. I'm still going, oh, maybe I can get, maybe I can change the timing on this or the wording on this or get a little more. Oh, that got a bigger thing than it normally gets, you know? <clears throat> so it's like endlessly fascinating problem. And you're never done. Like you're never just, you're never done. Um, so in the end, 
art is a means of expression. Every artist has a need to express. Uh, art is a means of connection. We all, every human has a need to connect. Art provides unique experience. It's a great experience to share in that experience. And no, it doesn't make art more important than any other human endeavor. It doesn't make any art important, more important than any other art. And in the end, the earth will fall into the sun and the universe will collapse and none of this will matter. And when we talk about, you know, legacies and we talk about history and we talk about, you know, the past and the future, well, you know, other than a couple of ancient Roman and Greek writers, you know, other than, than them, uh, the next longest thing we think of is Shakespeare. Well, it's only 400 years, and 400 years is not even a blink in the eye of the universe. So in the end, you live to learn and to love and to find elements of joy amidst all the struggle. And the arts can be an interesting way, is one very interesting way to live through all of that, to find our own individual way with the struggle, through the struggle, and to communicate and connect with others. Art's a great way to do that. And magic is truly a unique way to do that. And that's it. I don't make any argument for or against it as compared to anything else. It's what I know. Mm. It happens to be what I care about, for better or for worse. I like that. I think that falls a lot into everything that you've been saying about just self-expression and kind of what you are and what you care about. And I guess in the end, like you say, it's, it's what you love and it's your way of, it's one of your mediums, right? Uh, aside from writing. And I mean, you, it seems like you have a lot of artistic <laughs> mediums, but it's one of your mediums for, for expression. So yeah, exactly. Um, and it could have yeah. been so many others. It could have been so many other things, you know, uh, if I had to do it over again, um, I probably would have been, I may have been better off being a writer or actually completely unrelated. I, I love, I'm fascinated by the law. I think I would have made a great litigator, criminal constitutional lawyer. I would have loved that. Didn't occur to me until it was really kind of too late. Um, and for that matter, um, uh, I started out, the reason I, my first industry was in the pet and aquarium industry. And I had this great passion for wildlife. I was a wildlife activist. I was a a wolf handler and conservation activist and wow. I came very close to ending up in the zoo profession as a curator and uh, if I had ended up doing that uh, that you know at this stage of my life uh, maybe instead of trying to go out and find big audiences I would have been very happy to have been um, feeding the wolf and otter exhibits day to day at the zoo so uh, I don't know. Some of it is just, uh, it's just random. You know, I think the important thing, I have, I have three sons and my older boys are teens now. They're headed towards college next year. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I always tell them, you don't have to figure out, you're under no pressure to figure out what it is you want to do. All I ask is that you try and find things that matter to you and that you might that you can find engaging and satisfying 
Uh, and mine happens to be doing card tricks. You know, I, I, I remember the first time I went to Japan, a long time ago now, and I was booked for this little convention. Well, not so, uh, not so little, but I was booked for this convention. And the first day there, I woke up in the hotel. The convention was, we had flown in the day before, two days before to get our, you know, on the schedule. And this, finally we got up that day and this convention was going to start that evening. And I had breakfast with um, Dave Williamson and Daryl. Three of us were booked for close up. And I, uh, we had breakfast, terrible American breakfast in a Japanese hotel. And um, <laughs> then we went walking down the streets just to, you know, look around. And we were standing on a street corner waiting for the light to change. And I turned to them and I said, do you realize that we're standing here basically because we do nice card tricks? Standing mm -hmm. here on the other side of the world in Japan because we do nice card tricks. That's that's like, that's kind of mind-blowing, you know? And I, yeah. I, there are certainly performers who I know artists who've made, you know, more money than me and done more shows than me. But the one thing I can't argue and my activities and skepticism is a piece of this, along with everything else that I've done in my, re in my resume is I've managed to have a really interesting life so far. I seem to have a talent for that. <laughs> and that's a good talent. Yeah. And it doesn't pay the rent by itself. But it sure makes it feel like a full day at the end of the day, you know. Right. Yeah. And magic's a well, great way to make that happen, isn't it? Not just that. Not just that yeah. deck of cards takes me around the world, but what that experience is, you know, that experience of using that deck of cards in a Japanese home where no one speaks English, or an Italian home, <laughs> no, an Italian bar where no one speaks English and just having that deck of cards and creating this experience and people are laughing, connecting and gasping those sounds I talked about. That's a pretty right. unique tool. That's a unique tool if you use it well. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Jimmy. I mean, really, thank you so much you for bet. your time and everything that I've learned. I mean, thank you. if no one else gets anything out of this, I definitely got <laughs> a lot <laughs> out of it. Um, before we end, I'd, I'd love to give you the chance to kind of shout out anything that you would like oh, to. Uh, let's see. Any let me see. Well, my, my, I, have a new web, I have a new website with a new online store that has all my books that you can get signed. And also a few products, and also my videos uh, that are produced by Vanishing Inc. who also publish my books. I have two videos, one on the cups and balls, one on the card on ceiling, uh, plus a few unique products that are available only on my site. Um, I also have a blog going there. I don't know if you've seen this yet yourself. Yeah, I did. Okay, yeah. so I have a blog going there in which I'm writing about magic, and I've there's a couple of interesting pieces there. Yeah, uh, some like the one on David Roth. I like the one on David. A lot, of, a lot of people like the one on David Roth. The very first one for card guys uh, and gals. The uh, uh, first card, first real mod, new uh, entry a couple of months ago is called Vernon's elegant selected card handling. I think, and it's about something that I Vernon taught me, and. Um, the most recent piece, which actually got a lot more attention than I thought, ex expected it would, but it's a little 
unpublished piece that we wrote but did not include in the magic of Johnny Thompson. And it's about a final load for the classic hat trick. But besides including Johnny's version, I also include my own. And that actually got a tremendous amount of feedback from people, including especially some professional friends on Facebook and elsewhere. So anyway, so there's a blog. It's all at jamieianswiss.com. Uh, I'm not hard to find. And uh, mm. what else? Um, recently, I just in the last two issues, the March and April issue of Genie Magazine, I've written a very lengthy piece. It's the cover story of the March issue and then continued in continues into the April issue, a very lengthy piece about the Phantom of the Card Table, uh, a.k.a. Walter Scott. And this is uh, triggered, inspired by a new edition of the Phantom of the Card Table, this legendary underground manuscript written by Eddie McGuire. Um, and uh, there's a new edition produced by the Conjuring Arts people, beautiful new edition that has a lot of... Uh, material that most some of which has not been seen before uh and so i write about that new edition at the end but i but the two-part piece is a is a kind of a newly written and and, and uh researched i really spent a couple of although i've written about this story before over the years uh i did a lot of new research on this a lot of in-depth research it's a very interesting historical story about a unique event that happened in brooklyn new york June 14th, 1930. Uh, so there is that that I commend people do. And that just started to remind me of one last thing. Oh, and the one last thing is I was a book reviewer, as you mentioned, for Genie Magazine for 18 years. Uh, I also wrote for three years at magicana.com. And if you go to the Vanishing Ink site and you go down to the footer at the bottom of the page over on the right there where there's a bunch of links, it says Magic Book Reviews, and that will take you to a completely searchable archive that is free to every book review I ever wrote for Genie. That's about 450 books. It's about half a million words, fully searchable by whatever you want, title, author, contributor, subject, whatever. You search in the word phantom, you'll find four books that I reviewed going back to the 1990s, including the original phantom manuscript. Uh, it's a, a really, there's no other research tool like it out there. I was just talking to Dennis Baer, who runs the Conjuring Archive, uh, the other day. Hmm. He was comment. He wrote me a note that he had used it in researching some of the things he was indexing in the Conjuring Archive. I was very flattered to hear that, delighted to hear it. I'm a big fan of Dennis Baer's and a constant user of the Conjuring Archive. So that Genie Archive is very useful. And you can also find, there is a link there, but you can also find it at magiccounter.com. I wrote about three years of book reviews under what's called the Lion's Den, L-Y-O-N-S, for Howard Lyons, Pat Lyons. But more importantly, perhaps, there's a section called Take Two, in which I wrote 71 installments of curated videos of magicians and magic accompanied by essays that run about 1,500, 2,000 words. They're mostly about individual performers, some contemporary, some historical. They're also occasionally about a branch of the magic, like illusion or manipulation. They're also occasionally about a subject like street magic or a particular effect like Lincoln Rings or something. 
mostly they're about individual uh, performers who, who I, I've done careful selection of video samples of their work. And then I write, it's art appreciation, I, for not only for magicians, but for non-magicians. There's no discussion of method at any time. And it's really for magic fans, of which there are more magic fans around today than ever before, thanks to shows like Fool Us, where people are fans of magic and they like watching magic and they're not practicing magicians. And this is written for both magicians and non-magicians alike. And um, the SAM often reposts some of these on, on Facebook, I'm glad to see. Uh, and uh, it's, an in, it's another interesting resource. So I commend people to these various resources of mine, the Genie uh, Archive, the Take-Two Archive, and my current blog. And if you subscribe to the blog, you also get a discount to my online store. Thank you very much. I, I definitely would highly recommend everything that Jimmy just said. I've read through a bunch of the Take-Two Archive, especially when I was trying to really get deep into magic and the extremely... just just a great resource and, and everything else you mentioned as well i mean everything you write is, is very thorough and uh, uh easy to read as well um so thank you so much thanks for the kind of words that. jacob thanks for your time today and uh it's uh, been a pleasure talking with you pleasure talking to you